This is a Curious Podcast, exploring the tension between architecture and ecology through critical positions. Welcome to AR Ecologies, a series by the Architectural Review. Founded in 1896, the AR has set the international architecture agenda in its pages for over 125 years. The AR is joined in this episode of AR Ecologies by the Canadian Centre for Architecture, also known as the CCA, based in Montreal in Canada. We're following the research of the How to Do No Harm residency, curated by Lev Bratyshenko and Charlotte Malter-Barts. This chapter of AR Ecologies will look at the harm that architects do to land, cities, materials and workers. It's about being honest, realising that in many ways, existing in this ecological age is harmful. What happens when we accept that, as architects, we will always do harm? And what does that mean for the workers, buildings, cities and land we extract from in the name of architectural production? Architecture is created by ripping materials out of the earth that then infringe on other lands. It displaces human and other than human lives. It weaponizes the promise of growth and capital to trap people through debt and mortgages or otherwise evict them. Architecture demands the back-breaking labour, not just of architectural workers, but miners, builders, cleaners and maintenance staff. These truths hurt. Facing the reality of the harm that architecture inflicts on the world raises more questions than answers. Questions that architects alone do not have the answers to. Once we acknowledge that we can't create without extracting, we can start transforming our ways of working to make them regenerative. This podcast brings together voices out of orbit, including lawyers, curators, ecologists, activists, writers, and more. Discussing the oil pipeline snaking through Canada, the search for an architectural identity in the globalizing cities in Togo, the labor organizing happening in classrooms and workplaces, and the unceded lands of the Haida Nation in British Columbia. While architecture is the common thread that links everything together, We want to dwell in the in-between spaces of the topics we bring to the table. The grey spaces that shift from anthropocentric to ecological, and with the help of our guests, hear stories we have never considered before. Architects want to find new ways to practice architecture on this scarred planet. To do no harm. But is this possible? I'm your host, Ellen Pearson, Assistant Editor at the AR. I think starting from... Uh, a position of harm or a reflection on harm is a way of avoiding thinking of yourself as good or as you know innocent and I think this uh, could be transformative in in architecture so I think it also has a kind of a, a provocative or, or, or conceptual almost rhetorical function of just dismissing the possibility of not doing harm and starting from that kind of honesty that voice is Lev Bratyshenko, curator at the CCA. Under a growth paradigm, there is no potential really for, for not, not doing harm or doing less harm if the overall scale of everything is growing. But outside of harm or the opposite of harm, I think there is like helping. Um, but even if you are, let's say, your orientation of your work is to help someone, you will still do some harm in helping them. In 2020, Charlotte Malter-Bart, architect, urban designer, and assistant professor of architectural and urban design at the EPFL, 
proposed a global moratorium on new construction. The world had come to a standstill due to the coronavirus pandemic, but we continued to extract from it. This initiative called for all construction to pause until we could find a non-extractive way to live on and with the earth. Everything is doing harm in architecture. Being an architect means you do harm. From the practice and the way it operates mostly to construction itself, from you know digging foundations to the materials that you're gonna use in a building um, to the labor and the conditions of labor that are usually uh, on site to the operational uh, costs of a building, for instance, you know, like from energy to to use to even possibly then the dismantling of the building once it's finished with its uh, first use or everything there's harm <laughs> in architecture. So how much harm is acceptable? And who decides? Mm. Charlotte's moratorium call was a thought experiment in the face of relentless harm and growth. But it was asking those involved in construction to pause and rethink about the futures we are building, asking if they always need to be built anew. That's where this podcast picks up. What are we building and how is it harmful? Doing less harm, I think, is a good place to start because I don't think it's possible to... Um, to be really neutral in terms of um, the harm that we do as uh, architects or planners. I think that um, we have to really let that idea sail away um, and and think about mitigation and about harm reduction, in fact. And um, that would probably mean a more general reduction of what we do or think about how we can scale down um, in terms of material use, but also Mm -hmm. abuse. This is going to involve some painful truths. In a way, we have to admit that architects have like this adjacency to power. And if we know and admit that, you know, we we as an industry produce like 49% of the carbon emission, then we need to use in a way that adjacency to power to like undo or like limit or mitigate. And we should really do that. This adjacency to power, and often power itself, is where we start. Because admitting that architecture is a mode of power is also where we can recognise and take back agency within this. I wanted to speak to someone who understands the mechanics of this power and the need to define and quantify the forms of harm that this causes. What harm is substantively? I guess I have quite a basic understanding of um, it causes pain and or a threat to a person's life but then i think the more maybe controversial and difficult aspect of that is is how that harm is enacted right so there's the obvious maybe unilateral instances of violence but then there's also these kinds of slow chronic violences that disguise themselves as help but that i, I guess look fine or benign and are actually chronically harmful. That voice is Saha Shah, a critical legal studies scholar who researches and teaches on decolonization and climate justice in Canada at the University of Bristol in the UK. 
This field offers a perspective that makes visible the ways that seemingly well-meaning structures can be deeply harmful and actually codify violence into their operations. The the way I approach it, um, the idea of harm, I guess, in my work is um, from the perspective of law as um, a system that tends to perpetuate systemic violence. Um, so people in my area of um, law or that come from my sort of um, field, which is something called critical legal studies, tend to have quite a cynical view about law as a whole. So both um, the substantive laws that we see in Western societies, which is the, um, the, the type of law that I focus on in terms of the um, object of my inquiry, um, so the substantive laws, but then more importantly, the kind of um, the modality of power that's exercised through law and the ways in which law exercises force along specific dynamics of power that have been um, historically constituted. In the recent energy issue of the AR, Saha wrote about oil pipelines in Canada and how they inscribed the settler colonial thesis on indigenous land just as railways did in the 19th century. In her essay, she writes, Pipelines comprise over 840,000 kilometres of the railway network's 49,422 kilometres. Pipelines are born from and feed into globalised systems of wealth and accumulation. Like railways, pipelines are built primarily through the labour of precarious and temporary migrant workers and on the lands of indigenous people. There's this idea of settler colonialism as a structure. And so then there's the question of, well, if that structure is harmful and violent, which I kind of take as axiomatic, then how do you dismantle that structure without it seeming like harm or violence? And that's actually something like a tension that emerges so strongly in legal discourses relating to, uh, for example, what I look at, which is indigenous environmental protection and land activism, the law characterizes any instance of indigenous or allied activists, for example, blockading railways to protest legislation that will remove environmental protections. Uh, the, the, the Canadian legal system will characterize those instances of protest as a form of irreparable harm because they've threatened the property rights of a, a railway company or a pipeline company, as the case may be. And it, it's very difficult to understand the legal characterization of harm as something that doesn't seem to match the definition that I said earlier, right, that causes direct harm to a person's body or mind or anything like that. Like It's so divorced from the idea of the plain English idea of the word harm right? Property is a fictitious thing. So how can um, someone violating the idea of a fictitious concept constitute a form of irreparable harm? And and yeah, so I, I guess there's that question of harm would need to be maybe enacted in the short term, but we would also need to sort of question what that harm would be and whether whether and to what extent it is really harmful. 
This brings us to a context where someone's very presence in a particular location is already deeply harmful. In the energy issue, Sahar argued that the ghosts of settler colonial violence are contained within architectures and infrastructures. She wrote, Two highly visible, aggressively transformative technologies of settler colonial violence illustrate the structural, living presence of colonialism in Canada, the railway and the pipeline. We might think of railways, which first etched the settler colonial thesis on land in the 19th century as containing the ghosts of settler colonial violence that the state cannot lock away in the past. And we might consider pipelines as spectres, both ghost and prophecy, embodying past violences and engendering further violences. There's this continuous political reproduction of the idea that there's a legacy of colonialism, there's vestiges of colonialism, and that flies in the face of the idea of settler colonialism as a structure, right, that actively produces things in the present and and is structured to cause violence rather than a, a kind of benign system that in the past maybe malfunctioned. That's the implication when colonial violence is, is considered a historical thing in the context of a settler colonial society. There's this idea that the law itself and the system of governance is somehow neutral or even good, but there were these, these violent slip-ups somehow that we can't understand how they happened and now we need to kind of just all together move forward from it as if there was no actual perpetrator there was no logic of violence that is still not only embedded in our society or in canadian society but that actually is the the found the logical foundation of the society and it, it's it's difficult for i think the Canadian government to accept that sort of active, alive presence of colonialism, because if we accept the idea that colonial violence was not this kind of confusing anomaly from the past and actually is the structure of the current government, then we might start to ask, well, by what logic and authority does the Canadian government actually exercise jurisdiction on what it calls Canadian quote-unquote soil and legally it's never fully articulated. Um, there's two sources by which the Canadian state or the Canadian federal government can claim um, jurisdiction so it claims jurisdiction through treaty it points its origination sometimes um, on certain lands to the treaties it entered into historically with indigenous groups, um, but that doesn't cover all Canadian land, firstly. And secondly, there's a lot of dispute between indigenous groups and the Canadian federal state as to how those treaties should have been interpreted. And the Canadian state problematically interprets the treaties as constituting unilateral permanent transfers of land from indigenous groups to the Canadian state. So there's already a problem there with its claims to legitimate jurisdiction. But then also there's a huge amount of land in Canada, particularly in British Columbia, that's unceded. So it was never, it can't trace its the origins of its relationship with the Canadian state to any kind of treaty or more problematically, this is the, the language that the Canadian state uses, or to some kind of surrender. 
denying that the violence of the past is both still felt today, but also in fact ongoing today, is key to the settler psyche, and creates a condition where the full scale and nature of the violence cannot be properly understood. This temporal condition is in contrast to ideas of survivance, a term coined by Anishinaabe scholar Gerald Weisner. Survivance is more than the notion of surviving in the face of adversity, but an active and alive celebration of the cultural, literary, philosophical and epistemological thriving of a group, while enduring the ongoing violence of settler colonialism in North America. Saha describes this in her essay as a reminder that the colonial project to destroy never fully succeeded in extinguishing other people, worldviews, social orders and natures. So if you kind of break it down to its essential logical kernel, the Canadian state can't really pull that thread too hard of of the presence of colonialism because it would start to sort of really undermine its legitimacy. It would not have any kind of historical or logical claim to authority on the land that is today called Canada. And so I, th- I think in a way it has no choice but to sort of deny the presence of colonialism, to deny the sort of the, the aliveness and structural nature of colonialism. And it has to instead sort of say to present colonial violence as, as a mystery that even it's baffled by, right? That, oh, we all are so puzzled that this could have ever happened. Even though we have, for example, the 2019 National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women arguing that that the Canadian state is locked into an ongoing genocide against Indigenous people, and particularly Indigenous women and girls. And the Canadian state even then, Trudeau saying, yes, maybe it was a genocide. And and it's crucial that actually they're claiming that it is a genocide, right? But that that dispute in temporality is, is of enormous political, legal and philosophical importance. When a settler colonial state denies that colonial violence is active and ongoing and disregards the importance of nature and ecology over infrastructure, the consequences weigh heaviest on those who have lived with and on the land for generations. You know, like if you don't have nature, you don't have any touchstone of what is true. That voice is Gujao. Gujao is a raven of the Haida Nation. Haida Gwaii is an archipelago off the coast of British Columbia, between Alaska and Vancouver Island. In November 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled unanimously in Haida Nation v. British Columbia that the province must consult with the Haida Nation before exploiting any land to which they have claimed title, even if the title has not been recognised by law. This followed decades of violent extraction and abuse of their lands, and unilateral actions by the provincial government, such as issuing tree farm licences on land that the Haida Nation had an Aboriginal right to. The Haida Nation fought to assert rights and titles over the land and waters of Haida Gwaii and received compensation for profits made from the abuse of their lands. Gujao was a rights, title and earth advocate, founding member and president of the Coastal First Nations Coalition and president of the Council of the Haida Nation. He is also a carpenter, canoe builder, copper maker, singer and carver. 
Gujarati's land is something to live with, not on. The harm is at the collective level, you know, like where we live in, um, you know, square walls and, uh, you know, usually made out of gyprock and stuff like that. And, and there's no thought ever of the earth that we're living upon. If you take it apart and look at what the heck's going on and it, you know, it almost looks like a deliberate effort to spoil the earth. And so it takes a heck of a lot of individuals to reverse what they're doing. Every dollar that we have eventually comes from resources, comes from the earth. And so the more you have, the more effect you've had on the earth. For the Haida Nation, the use of the land also ensures its protection. When they use a 500-year-old tree to carve a totem pole, they are keeping their ancestral culture alive, showing that the value of the tree as lumber is worth nothing to them. When a totem pole stands tall on the land, they are celebrating the land and its products. You know, the old culture, which was, you know, all cedar houses with totem poles, you know, like expressing the relationship of our people to the land and you know, you know that you depend upon the land, you know, not just for the food and all that, but for the building materials. And so you go to some other places around the world where the, the indigenous cultures built with um, you know, the materials that they had. And if it is forest from the forest or if it is from the earth, in either case, it was still... There was no separation from the land. Using a tree is different than laying waste to a forest. You know, like it's a whole different thing. You know, you're using the resource, but you're not particularly affecting, you know, like the drainage or anything like that if you're doing that. But it's also to celebrate that relationship between us and the earth. You know, like, so the crest and stuff are our story, going back to our origins and who we are. Gujar speaks mournfully of a lost connection between us and the earth. A settler colonial state severs this connection, denying what was there and creating something new. To make concrete, you got to grind up the earth, but you reconstitute it and make it look like as if it is never earth, it is never anything. And so feeds on that thing of people being separate from the earth and not having anything about. I mean, the trees will often be, uh, or the, any plants that are around would often be exotic, brought in from somewhere else, you know, as the, as the colonizers had done, you know, they all decorate their houses with daffodils and things from the old country. And people will go into um, other lands and bring the plants and stuff, but, you know, that have no bearing on, you know, the, the natural condition there. In contrast, Gujar describes his own home on Haida Gwaii, one which he built from the land around him. Everything that I used here is from here, you know, so there's a lot of uh, cedar and um, 
you know, those kind of things are a constant reminder of that. It's not separating me from the land, but I'm in comfort in my house because of the land. This connection to nature that Gujal speaks of goes against the modern project and its obsession with the new. Charlotte talks about the assumed tabula rasa that was the foundation of the international style. I think also software should not open anymore on these blank pages. I think this is like fallacious and really inherited from the modernist tabula rasa that you open your CAD file and it's blank. I mean, it's never the case. Nowhere is blank. There is always, there was always something before and there is something in the soil and there is something in the air and there are people around. Our work as architects is one of the most aggressive, you know, right now in the in the global uh, uh, state of the of the world. This voice is Sename Kofi Agbujanu, an architect, anthropologist, and entrepreneur from Togo. He created L'African d'Architecture in 2010, a platform to share projects, research, and experimentation on questions of African architecture in the city. In his work as an architect and through tech startups, he coined the term neo-vernacular, referring to grassroots technological initiatives that aim to address local issues, created in the face of fast-growing megacities in Africa. He seeks to foster an African architecture identity that is more adapted to the current anthropological reality. Sename talks about what neo-vernacular means to him. For me, the vernacular is everything connected to uh, a specific site, everything who, who is situated, you know. So... These 20 years, I maybe saw that one of the biggest uh, issue of the world is this uh, global city in construction, uh, which is a direct consequence of the, the ideal of the modernity. And uh, I found that at some point, the, the modernity itself will become uh, very problematic uh, with this project to try to create a sort of universal way of living for people wh wherever they are in this planet. And to address these future issues, people wherever they are should be able to begin to uh, try to uh, develop their very situated uh, capacities, uh, possibilities. Uh, if you want to specialize yourself in building the nerve, you, you have to do everything yourself because you don't have this infrastructure, you don't have those laboratories, you don't have those uh, company uh, working on it. Everybody right now in Africa, uh, almost everybody is on cement, concrete, and it is the only one uh, perspective people have for building. And it is a lot associated to the modernity, to the, uh, this sort of fascination Africans have for the West. You know. So uh, normally uh, building in local material, like building in earth should lead you to have less in terms of cost for the, your project, because those materials are just there. They, they didn't come from an industrial uh, system, you know. 
20 years ago, I was uh, only interested in building with local material and try to revitalize the, uh, the moods of the elf architecture, building with, uh, uh, with elves. But for some reasons, people are not interested anymore in built in earth. So one of my commitments at the beginning was to see how I can uh, show that earth is modern and how we building with earth architecture, we can achieve the same quality or the same comfort people see in what they, they call uh, modern architecture or international uh, architecture. Sename is asking architects to act in the local while being aware of the globalized nature of construction. How do we reconnect these severed links between architects and their sites, between buildings and the earth that they are hollowing out? Maybe the architect can't go to the site, but they can still go to another site in the city. They can still go to, you know, to the dirt, to the construction workers, to a quarry or, or, or cement place where cement is being mixed or, or even maybe produced. I don't know, there's still, there's still ways that they can kind of, you know, in their body encounter some of these things, maybe not a copper mine, but um, all of that is better than not. You, you go from, for instance, looking at a very small detail, you know, like, I don't know, like a, a, a hand, um, like a knob, you see how actually that knob is made out of aluminum, which is extracted through very violent processes of extraction um, processed into you know aluminium and through bauxite and doing kind of a lot of harm through that process and then it's put on boats and then the boats are you know going somewhere else and then they're like you can you in a way you can follow from that to the bigger scale and at the bigger scale the questions of who is affected i think gets more blurred. In the case of aluminium, it's bauxite, and for the sake of constructing dams, um, the Alcao, for instance, the big um, aluminium corporation of America, they flooded thousands of hectares of um, tropical forests, which actually was home to indigenous populations. So not only was the forest gone and eliminated, but also the people who were living there had to flee. And today they decided to stop mining there because it was not enough productive. So they just gave money in the name of sustainability. It's never going to be enough. You have, a, you have a special moment to talk about this when the person you're speaking to has their hand on an aluminum doorknob. Yeah. What Lev and Charlotte speak about here comes back around to shifting values and assumed modes of production, and even down to the way we as architects and as citizens encounter buildings through the simple act of opening a door. What new possibilities does this create? If we think about architecture as the existing stock as something that is of new value in a way, as we have reduced resources, for instance, then we didn't, we need to deal with this stuff a little bit more careful than we do right now. I mean, you can't demolish anything anymore. You really have to take care of what we have. And this also means that it puts into question newness, I guess. So that would loop back to buses and um, power structures. You know, in a way, if we were to rethink the ways we operate um, with these new value systems, this value shift, 
then probably the kind of pyramidal systems also don't hold because you question, you know, the kind of genius production of something, um, a new idea or like how, how things are always actually recycled, in fact. We started this conversation by talking about power structures and that's where it ends too. We have accepted the architecture as an engine of extraction and production that inflicts harm by its very nature. But if you open the engine up, you find operational harm at its core, fueling the entire project. That's the least sexy thing about learning architecture. It has nothing to do with like the aesthetics of an object, and it has everything to do with your ability to sort of navigate networks of politics and power within the action of your working life. Jess Myers is an assistant professor of architecture at Rhode Island School of Design, where she was among the college's cluster hire of educators on race and art and design. She has been co-steward of the New York chapter of the Architecture Lobby, a global collective of architectural workers. Jess speaks about what harm in architecture translates as and how it is reproduced. It can be the harms that you carried from school and how you're reproducing them in your working life. It can be the harms that you're navigating from a client and how a partner may be diffusing those harms within their firm that kind of thing. So whether it's sort of a demand for overtime or um, the inability to communicate to others without abuse or the inability to consider the implications on land or on residents of this action of the line on the screen, right? So that's how I think about sort of the, let's say, economy of harm that like moves through all of these different relations within architecture. So you have all of these forms of relation that exist inside of an office, right? You have the relation with uh, like contractors, with consultants, with all of this sort of like other uh, group of sort of external stakeholders. You have the relationship with clients and client groups. But then you also have all of these other external relationships, like the relationships and memories of relationships that folks are bringing in from their educations. And then you also have... Um, the relationship between obviously the, the product of these firms and uh, land, um, as well as occupants, residents, folks who are like making meaning from the built environment and kind of building their lives or having their lives shifted um, by the built environment. So that's the interesting thing about architecture. I don't think that gets talked about enough is that like all of these different relationships kind of converge on the action of kind of like drawing a line on a screen <laughs> you know um so like all of yeah all of those relationships come to bear and then get uh sort of pushed on or reconfigured um based on those actions right so when it comes to harm i think about harm in the context of all of those relations i think a lot about this idea of kinship it's not like friendship it's not like you did a terrible thing to me and i never want to see you again <laughs> it's that People who do harm or people who hurt others are still in the relation of kin. It's the idea that like you can be in good, you know, or poor relation with others, but you're still in relation. So I think about how do you become like good kin or how do you be how do you think about being in good relation? And when you've been in poor relation, how do you how are you accountable to that? At RISD, Jess now addresses these issues at the root in the ways in which she teaches professional practice as well as design studio. 
what I wanted to do, which is a, a departure from what professional practice does typically in the U.S., which is to prepare students to be firm owners. Um, what I wanted to do is like, how do you teach professional practice from the scale of being uh, an architectural worker? So within that, it's like, what are the skill sets that are good for people who work in architectural services to have? So we brought in questions around, okay, what is labor organizing? What is unionizing look like? And we brought some of the organizers from shop to talk to students. Um, but at the same time, we did a financial literacy workshop. We did a negotiations workshop. In negotiations, I think the interesting thing is that it's really understanding all stakeholders, like being able to identify stakeholders, being able to do a map, like a power map of how those stakeholders are in relation with each other, and having some understanding of the priorities of each of those stakeholders and navigating your negotiations in relation to that and full knowledge of that. The abusive processes of architectural culture also enable the harms that architecture then does upon the world. The industry is continually producing an exploitable workforce, one that graduates with the kind of debts that crush demands and agency within practice. Architecture practices at their most exploitative will tell you that you're part of the family, and at the top of this family is the daddy. Jess explains architecture's daddy complex sort of jokingly in the past referred to it as daddy culture, where like, and this is not just exclusive to firms, this carries through from studio culture, where it's like, what I do is I bend over backwards to impress this person, right? To impress this one person, because I think that I'll be able to get ahead, I'll get a good grade, I'll get recognized, maybe this faculty will like let me work in their office, maybe this person will include me in a, in a book or something like that, and I'll be able to like benefit in some way, some way that's not tangible, or even you can't really evaluate if it's commensurate to the amount of work that you put in. Or again, going back to this understanding of opportunity costs, the opportunity cost of your the other relationships in your life, right? Um, that are also support systems and also, you know, forms of wealth, if you think about wealth in, in a more holistic way. What I think is interesting about the idea of like, oh, the culture of like we're a family is also about you know, one that that tries to flatten the um, the power, the structures of power that exists in an office um, where it's like, yeah, you know, we can sit together at, at the lunch counter. But then when I turn around and I'm like, I need you to be here for the rest of the night and you try to push back and, and say, like, actually, I need to, you know, pick up my kids or I need to do this other thing, then that creates tension. It's not as if there's a two-way street to that sort of family relation. It's very clear about who is expected to exhibit like superhuman amounts of flexibility and who is expected to like receive that flexibility. One of the incentives to receiving harm in architecture is that you will be able to be the person doling out the harm down the road. So like, I think that when we're talking about the exploitation of workers, we have to also talk about like, are we attracted to that incentive? Are we attracted to that desire to also be sort of like an arbiter of harm at the same time um, as we ourselves are sort of um, buckling under the weight of the, the harms that, that we ourselves are 
kind of receiving in, in our working lives. So These power dynamics are constantly reproduced when the rewards for having harm inflicted upon you is to go on to inflict harm. This is built into the stratified nature of architecture workplaces in an industry where people rarely see themselves as workers at all. If we think about like oh, construction workers and 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 people who work in, in in more industrial work, like they they think of themselves as workers, and they have to to sort of protect themselves from like physical harms, and you know that's what they have unions for. But we're very prestigious; we have all these degrees, and that's why you know we we don't need that kind of protection because we have this level of prestige. But that doesn't mean that you aren't you don't have sort of workplace concerns in the same way you know I've, I when I talk to students about that distinction you know one of them was just like well you know I'm not putting my body on the line and I'm just like oh yeah like why are you wearing this sort of arthritis glove on your hand right now or like or like your back or like your eyes like architecture as a profession has a history of valorizing individuals always in search of the single author holding the pen and not the many hands that make a building, build a city. But if, as Gujar said earlier, the harm is at a collective level, the solution too must be at a collective level. How could this reframing of architects as workers, and as one part in a chorus of stewards of the built environment, be transformative, not just for our working culture, but architectural production? We have been doing a lot of harm with this system, and if we want to think beyond that, we also need to shift value systems. So for me, the most telling example is always the example of upkeep. So this is, you know, dismissed work, like the, the task of like cleaning up and um, picking up trash and, um, you know, doing this like daily works is racialized, gendered underpaid um but actually it's what holds the world together imagine a firm i mean it would no longer resemble anything like an architecture firm we think of it could not operate the way firms operate today if it also included in it as kind of you know uh, respectable colleagues not somehow under an underclass of, of colleagues you know maintainers plumbers cleaning ladies uh you know um construction workers of all, of all different trades. If this was sort of, you know, integrated, not in a kind of corporate, we're trying to make, squeeze more profit out of a model, but in like, we are all involved in producing and maintaining shelter, you know, as you're suggesting kind of getting rid of it and calling whatever this profession becomes, like shelter farmers, no problem. Immediately you have a whole new set of possibilities. But, you know, at the same time, as there are architects and that comes with certain legal, you know, powers or protections or, and, and various kind of access to to social capital and, and all kinds of other things, um, that can be used also to, you know, do less harm or, or, or produce sort of change. But where does this leave us? Are we architects or are we becoming shelter farmers? We've accepted that we have done harm, that we are doing harm and that we will continue to do harm. But where do we find hope? If we have the capacity to do such violence, how do we continue? Saha speaks about changing the way we see the world. This is something I found really particularly intellectually kind of, yeah, paradigm shifting for me has been the idea of looking at the world from a kind of comic perspective rather than a tragic one. And so the tragic 
vision. Like it's something that um, Lawrence Gross says sort of in, in many ways characterizes the settler um, North American kind of vision of life. The tragic vision kind of in a nutshell, it's this idea of the individual struggling against the world, sort of committed to their traditional ways and um, generally tragedy ends in kind of peril, it's characterized by suffering, etc. It's this very linear journey. Um, and then the tragic hero kind of either wins or dies. And this tragic vision explains a lot of the backgrounded assumptions that we have in thinking about the future in the West. And also, I, I was able to see that this that's kind of how I see things and how I see um, my interactions with the world. And then by contrast, there's the comic vision, which Lawrence Gross argues characterizes Anishinaabe thinking and ways of interacting with the world. And the comic vision is different, essentially. So it looks at the world in a sort of non-linear way. It's, it's, it looks at time in a non-linear way. It looks at realities as potentially multiple. And it looks at um, people as intrinsically linked. So it becomes not like the, the story of our lives becomes not one of sort of our own or the individual's linear journey, but it something that's sort of greater than the sum of its parts it's it's about enjoyment rather than suffering about li about living essentially rather than just not dying and lawrence gross links this with the idea of quantum physics and this idea of multiverses and things like that so there's this idea that the reality that we're perceiving and looking at is not actually the only reality that there is even though it looks that way and that idea kind of fills me with hope that there's more to all of this than what we can immediately see ourselves and what we can immediately um, imagine ourselves doing because there's, there's there is just more with a comic perspective on life you might start to have a more cosmic vision of the world. Up there, from this vantage point on our current reality of ecological, social and political crises, the view from the drawing board might feel a little kinder, and we might draw with a more generous hand. Architecture, sort of the stewardship of the built environment, is a practice of life, you know what I mean? Like, the impulse of creating shelter, right, is in response to sustaining life. Right. And if you don't have a life or like you're not able to live a life, then how can you have an imagination for the spaces that would contain it? Thank you for listening to this episode of AR Ecologies in collaboration with the CCA. You can find the link to this podcast transcript in the notes of this episode or head to architectural-review.com for all the latest pieces uploaded to our website including projects and essays featured in our AR October issue on energy. You will also find a link in the transcript to the publication that was produced during the How to Do No Harm residency at the CCA in September. The publication is an illustrated diary of an architect in ethical crisis who is judging between contemporary strategies to separate what's promising from what's just cheating. To quote the publication, it is not easy to accept that one's profession causes harm we like to think of ourselves as good people, and most of us are, but we live in systems that we did not choose, feel unable to change, or may not even perceive. When we harm other things, or the world sustaining our bodies, cultures, or even ourselves as architects, it is most often because it seems we do not have any choice.
The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices like the ones you hear in this podcast, and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 50% off for a limited time only.